0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. Today, my guest is Avia Pasternak. Avia is associate professor in political theory at the University College London. Her research focuses on questions of collective responsibility and political obligation in both democratic and non-democratic states. Her new book has just been titled with uh, just been published rather with Oxford University Press. It's titled Responsible Citizens, Irresponsible States. Should citizens pay for their states' wrongdoings? Now, we tend to think that states can act wrongfully and even criminally. Thus, we also tend to think that states can be held responsible for their bad acts. They can be made to pay compensation to the victims of their acts. They can be made to suffer penalties with respect to their standing in the international community, and so on. The trouble, though, is that when states are held responsible, it's typically the case that the cost or the burden of that wrongdoing and the responsibility for it is transferred to the citizens of the offending states. This holds for citizens who may have been unaware of the state's wrongful action or those citizens who were powerless to prevent the wrongdoing. It even holds for citizens who may have objected and protested their state's actions. So, what could justify this shifting of the burden? <laughs> from the states who committed the wrongs to the citizens of the state. Now, in her new book, Avia Pasternak develops a new defense of the idea that citizens have a duty to share in the burdens of their state's wrongdoing. However, Avia also addresses the practical and moral complexities of state wrongdoing. She defends a context-sensitive framework for distributing the burden for state's wrongs. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, But also, as usual, we'll begin with our guest. Hello, Avia. How are you?
1: Hi, Bob. Thanks very much. I'm good. Thanks for having me here.
0: I'm glad to hear that you're good, and I'm I'm really delighted to be talking to you uh, about this wonderful book that you've just published. Um, But why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'll be happy to. So um, I was born in Jerusalem, in Israel, and that's where actually I grew up, and Around the age of 21, after I did my military service in Israel, I enrolled as an undergraduate student in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in the Department of Political Science. And pretty quickly, it became very clear to me that political philosophy is my subject and that what I want to do in life is to be a professor of political philosophy. Uh, But around that period, I also became more involved in political activity um, against the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. And that was the period when um, the Oslo Peace Accord was basically collapsed. And it felt like um, political resistance to the ongoing occupation and to the ideological structures that support it it really felt futile despite our best efforts. Mm. And I guess at that time, it was when I became fascinated with kind of this ongoing determination of the activists around me to continue in the resistance nevertheless. Mm. And I had a feeling that there's um, something strange about the fact that despite them doing all that they can to resist the government's policies, they still have this profound sense of belonging to the state and a continuous sense of personal responsibility to the very policies that they were protesting against. Hmm. And that seemed almost contradictory to me. Why are you responsible for things that you're fighting against? So... It was pretty clear to me that when I went to Oxford to do my DPhil, that that's the question I want to work on and to think about and to understand. And I guess that question has accompanied me for a very long time, ever since. So I wrote my PhD dissertation on it. Then I published several articles and then I felt that my thinking about it evolved and matured. Until finally I reached a point where I said, you know what, I think I want to kind of actually put this all these ideas together in a book. And that's where we are.
0: Well, that's wonderful. You know, it's always interesting to hear um, uh, instances when um, philosophical or theoretical work has its um, origin in some um experience that somebody had or something that somebody encountered or confronted in their life so um that's an interesting background to the book um so why don't we begin uh then in talking about the book it's uh which i highly recommend to uh to listeners um uh this book addresses a a a very um complex uh um large problem um and um, in your conclusion, you've, you frame the, 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 the problem that the book is aimed to address. You frame it as a question. Uh, should citizens pay for their state's wrongdoings? Now, the entire inquiry of the book, as you were just explaining, is oriented around um, mainly two competing accounts of how the burden of state's wrongdoing should be apportioned uh, to the citizens. Uh, can you sort of explain the the, the big picture and those two models for us?
1: Sure. Yeah, and I I think with your permission, Bob, I'll, I'll spend a little bit time just explaining again the 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 big question because yeah. the way that the answers flow are are against the background. And I think you 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 gave a very good presentation of the core question that I'm interested in, and. The question that I'm interested in concerns this very real-world practice where we do actually hold states responsible and expect them to pay for what they've done. And we have real-world examples of that, and these are examples that I go back to in the book time and again. So the example that I chose to focus on where the the, the reparation scheme that West Germany paid to the victims of the Holocaust in the aftermath of the second world war i also think about the compensation scheme that iraq was um, kind of made to pay to kuwait and to other um, entities in the aftermath of the first gulf war so we see that at the international level i mean of course deficient and incomplete as it is there is a move to try to impose this type of obligations on states as such but we also see it very much in domestic affairs So there's many instances where present governments or states in their current form, in their present form, have taken responsibility for wrongs they committed in the past against their own populations. So, for example, um, in 2008, the Canadian government set up a a reparation scheme to address the plight of um, people who were forcibly removed as children from their indigenous peoples' communities. They're removed by the state or agents closely affiliated by the state, and the Canadian state accepted responsibility for that and apologized and also started the reparation scheme. So, as you said in, in, in your introductory note, our, our um, initial intuition or our initial agent that we are holding responsible in these scenarios is indeed the state itself. But given the corporate nature of the state, it is us as citizens who end up paying the price through the public purse. And that can be a problem. I mean, it can be a problem um, because it's not clear that all those citizens that end up paying should actually be burdened in this way. So we can think about the Iraqi citizens in the aftermath of the Gulf War. They suffered terribly, partly because those very large sums of money were taken out of um, the state's resources and given into the compensation scheme. And there are studies that suggest that at the time the Iraqi state just didn't have enough resources to meet even its citizens' basic needs. So we might wonder, do these citizens that have actually been ruled for decades by a brutal and authoritarian regime, are they the ones that are responsible to pay for its wrongdoings? So might have a worry here. Now, people might think, sure, it, it is a problem in, in states like Iraq, but surely it's not a problem in democratic states because we all have citizens of democracies. We can all take part in the political decision-making process and affect our state policies. But here, too, again, going back to the example I started with, I do think that there are citizens who seem, at least on the face of it, to have a valid complaint example, because they were not born and the time the wrongs were committed or they resisted, do everything that they can. All of these seems to be valid reasons why they shouldn't be the one that end up with a duty of, with a responsibility and the duty to clean up the mess um, when the state is demanded to do so. So that's kind of the the problem that that I'm dealing with. And as I uh, explained in the earlier part of the book, the, I'm not the first one to address it, obviously. So there has been some literature on it. Not a very big literature, to be honest, but there have been some attempts to address it in various places in the literature. And I suggest in, in chapter one, when I do this kind of literature review, that we can bundle the existing accounts into kind of two main module of groups. There are, there are differences between the accounts there, but we can have like these kind of two general outlooks. Um, the first outlook is one that suggests that we should have some kind of a proportional distribution of the burden amongst the state citizens. And I should ask, actually kind of put brackets here and say that I use the term citizens when I talk here and in the and in the book as well but as a matter of fact it's not just the formal citizens of the state that are kind of incurring the costs of a state's wrongdoing. Right there so in every state, we have also migrants and uh, permanent residents or temporary residents or, or whatever, all kinds of groups that are not formally citizens of the state but are still part, you know, participating in, say, paying taxes, for example. So they're too affected. I use the word citizens, when I mean all these groups, okay? So just to make sure that we know who I'm talking about. Okay, so going back to proportional distribution, the idea here is that we make sure that this burden from the state falls only on some citizens and in lights of and in proportion to some um, morally relevant characteristic. And there might be various characteristics here, but typically the one that uh, the that people who advocate this this type of models focus on is blame, is, is, a, is a fact of blame. So the idea here is that there are some people within the state that are more to blame than others for that wrongdoing that the state committed. So maybe here we should point the finger at policymakers, or maybe we should point the finger at people with lots of political influence. Or maybe we should point the finger at people who carried out the state's orders, right? So whichever people you you identify as more blameworthy, the model tells us they're the one who should pay the price in proportion to their level of blame. Now, this seems like a good answer, right? It seems like it can address those concerns that I mentioned earlier because, um, this model goes after the people that our intuitions, our common intuitions tell us, should be expected to pay the price. After all, it is a very common intuition, and if you are to blame for some wrongdoing, you are the one in the first instance that should be the one that's fixing it, right? And presumably, if you resisted the injustice, or you didn't know about it, or you're not even there because you're not well-born, you're not to blame, so therefore you are you know, kind of excluded from the model, and those moral concerns that we mentioned earlier are addressed. But I think that there actually... <laughs> and, there's, really... and
0: there's a but coming, right? <laughs> yes,
1: of course, because if that was the answer, then we could have um, <laughs> very... finished here, right, and close. <laughs> <Yeah, that's right. laughs> However, <laughs> I think that there actually are some problems with this approach, and as my thinking about this evolved to the years, my concerns become less principled and more pragmatic. Mm-hmm. So I just think that as a matter of practice, it is very, very unlikely that a blame tracking distribution can be successfully implemented in states, at least as we know them, right? right. So let's just think right. about the state. The state is a huge organization. It's extremely complex. It's very um, large. It's very complex compartmentalized. So it's just, I just don't see how the state can go and kind of try to determine the level of blame of each and every citizen and apportion the kind of, you know, the tax burden or the liability in light of it. Now, so I just think that it's very, very, it's not an operationable model. And if you try to go at this model, you're going to end up with such complexities that you basically can't get the compensation scheme off the ground, kind of in from the start and it's not just operational costs in that sense so um listeners might be familiar with the work of the philosopher iris mayan young and her important work on kind of questions of of responsibility to structural injustices she suggests that if we focus on the blame we are we actually get into problems of as of um of support so so people just tend to not support these kind of distribution schemes that are pointing the fingers because instead of kind of saying okay let's do this together they end up kind of trying to explain why i wasn't part of it right so it's not right. a very politically um, motivating model um So I don't think it's a very feasible model. And indeed, if you look at the real world states and the scheme that I mentioned, the Canadian scheme, the German scheme, the Iraqi scheme, they didn't go for proportional distribution, right? So they went for a model that more or less lets the burden fall kind of equally on the citizens. So Let's just say it's through the general tax system, right? So of course we all pay different levels of taxes, but it, our the share that we have for paying for the share that we kind of contribute indirectly through our taxes is not kind of tied to our personal connection to the to the wrongdoing. So I call it uh, that non proportional distribution model. And so pragmatically, the non proportional distribution does seem to fare much better than the proportional distribution. Indeed, states have implemented it in the real world and it seemed to work fine. But it does leave us with kind of moral concerns. Um, what about all these citizens that seem to have valid excuses? Now, we might right. say, well, it's just a necessary evil. Some, you know, Things are not perfect in the world and we just have to do that and some people will be wronged by it. But I was thinking that is not a very satisfactory answer because, again, if I want to, get, if I want to persuade people that this is a, you know, a good idea to engage in this compensation scheme, I want to give a, more, a better argument, this is just a necessary evil. And I'm also not sure that it's the right answer. Is it just a necessary evil? Right. So I went on a hunt, kind of looking for an argument that would justify, even to the protesting citizen even to the um, citizen who didn't know, even to the citizen who was not yet born when the policy was implemented, telling them there is a reason why you should be also doing your share and you can't, you know, regardless of your level of blame, we should all be doing this together. And that's where I am. That's where my book enters at this point. Right, right. Excellent. And so
0: um, that that was a real nice... um, uh, depiction of these sort of two broad um, competing accounts of how um, uh, the burden of the state's responsibility should be apportioned. Um, so your case then for the, the the non-proportional distribution, the more or less, you know, across the board distribution of responsibility among the citizenry for state's wrongdoing, um, draws on um, uh, an account of the state as a corporate agent, and um, a related account of um, citizens um, uh, satisfying a certain um, conception of w- of of what it is to be a participant in the state, or what you call an intentional citizen.
1: Can you tell us about those two ideas? Yes, sure. Because indeed they are at the heart of of the right. accounts that develop in the in the first. Kind of to, in in the second third chapter of the book, so um, the idea of corporate state agency um, is something that I take as a given in the book. I don't so much try to argue for it, but suggest that it is a kind of a fact of the world, and and I arrived this uh, to this idea again from kind of looking at the at the at the legal practice and uh, as as I already mentioned, it is very common practice in international law to treat states as legal entities, that is, agents that have their own rights and duties, uh, independent from those of the members. Common practice is probably, uh, put it mildly, so it, I would say it's actually the foundation of international law, that mm-hmm. of, uh, that states are uh, legal entities that kind of do business uh, with each other. Um, there is a, a, a pretty solid body of, of literature in, in that has kind of um, flourished in recent years that takes this idea of, of a corporate agency further. So it's, that, that literature suggests that certain groups and especially structured groups like the state, they're not um, just agents in a narrow uh, legal and formal sense. Um, they're actually corporate moral agents. So They're able to have their own reasoning, their own goals. And these reasoning and goals are not necessarily identical to those of all their members or even to those of of the majority of their members. Right. And um, there's quite a, a rich literature on kind of... Group decision making and, and procedures, and so on, and so forth, that, that shows that how the structures of the group, the institutions that put in place, the decision making form, uh, uh, the, uh, the decision making processes that they have in place, their internal hierarchies, um, various institutions, and the coordination between them all of these things can actually render the state's own reasoning and the state's own actions independent in an important sense from those. Of its members, for the mental states of Mm -hmm. uh, the members. And that idea that the state itself is a corporate moral agent that can act in the world and that can do wrong in the world and be responsible and culpable for doing wrong in the world, it's kind of um, makes it has an important implication for, for the question that we are concerned with here. Because, as I argue in the book, if it really the case that it is the state as an agent that is to blame for its wrongdoing and that there is an important separation between the state as a wrongdoer and the citizens, then it can quite possibly be the state that very few of the citizens share the blame for the wrongdoing. Um, Theoretically, it's even possible that none of the citizens share the blame, although I think in in practice. practical terms, that's, that's quite unlikely, but we can talk about a very small subset of citizens who actually share blame of contributing to the state wrongdoing. And if that is the case, and that poses a real problem for the proportional distribution model, because even if you could identify those who are to blame, you might end up with a rather small group that, you know, whatever you, resources you can get out of that group is not going to be sufficient right. to um, kind of cover all the compensation that is required for the state wrongdoing. So that kind of idea of state corporate moral agency, which I take as a given, so takes us back to the same point where we started with. Can we justify the distribution of a state responsibility even to citizens who don't share the blame and who are, you know, where there's an important kind of gap between their agency and that of the state? And that's where I'm kind of introducing uh, my solution in the book at this point, which, as you, as you rightly point out, revolves around the idea of, um, of intentions. Right. And in thinking about it, I, I thought of going back to the very idea of citizenship. So what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be a member of the state? Now we can think about citizenship as something completely formal, legal, you know, like having a certain stamp on your, having a certain passport or an ID or whatever. But for most of us, I mean, for the vast majority of us, citizenship is not just a legal document. Citizenship is more than just a passive status. Um, For the vast majority of us, citizenship actually involves things that we do. So various volitional acts. Um, as citizens, we do certain things in our state, we vote, some of us serve in the military, we pay our taxes, we um, do certain things that the law requires from us to do, and so on and so forth. So we are acting in our state as citizens. And the question is, can we say something about these this actions that we're doing as citizens? Can we actually characterize them as a form of collective actions? what we do together as citizens? And to answer that, we kind of need to think a little bit about the concept of collective action. What do we mean by acting together? And again, here, too, I'm sure the listeners will know that there's quite a, quite a rich body of literature on collective action, on, on the duties that flow from collective action. Right. But typically, the discussions in that literature, traditionally, they focused on, on small and on intimate groups, um, sort of think of example of, of Bratman's account, where who talks about um, people painting a house together, and so so we kind of think about these kind of small setups when we think about what it means to act together. And you might be persuaded by a certain accounts of collective action for for these small groups, but we might think, well, it's quite hard to understand how we as citizens are acting together in the state. I mean, as I, we already said, the state is a very complex. It's a very hierarchical institution. It's composed of a vast number of individuals. And most of us actually don't have any personal connection to the vast majority of other citizens in our state. In fact, we're more, more very likely to disagree with them on a very wide range of questions, including how to run our states, right? right. So in one sense, <laughs> are we actually acting together with them when we have so much disagreement we don't know each other? So that was my one of my challenges. I think. I have a sense that we are acting together in a state, even though it's such a massive and complex group. And my hunch that it is actually a form of collective action, um, it jo- draws on, on an existing account of collective action and that was developed by Christopher Kutz and in, in a book, uh, in a famous book called uh, Complicity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, Kutz suggests us that um, us It offers us an account of collective action that is meant to capture, actually, even um, people in kind of this kind of m- massive and 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 non-standard small groups, and um, and it tells us that people who act together, what they should should do at a minimum, they should intend to do their part in a collective act. Right. So they should, in other words, footing this that they should see themselves as contributing to the realization of some collective end or some shared goal. And, and tells says that when you're doing that, when you're kind of intending con- to contribute it through your actions to some shared goal, you become an inclusive author of that collective end or goal or act. So you, are, you can sensibly identify yourself as one of the we who did this. Mm-hmm. Um, we can say we went for a walk together or we built this building or we uh, impose this policy, and so on and so forth. Right, right. And the core idea here is that, or an important idea here is that when you act together in this way, you don't have to endorse the collective goal, right? So we can think, for example, of of prisoners who can say, um, we did this thing um, in the prison, not because they endorse what the prison ward is telling them to do, but, but because, Um, they recognize themselves as contributing to this end, even though they themselves do not endorse it at all. Um, As long as they play a role in kind of contributing to the realization of a certain collective end, they are part of the group who did it, even if they resent it. So I built on this account, and of course, I offer some revisions on the way, which I think improve it. And and I build on it to kind of, and I take this, but I largely take this model and I apply it to citizenship. And I kind of developed the idea of, intentional citizenship. So to me, intentional citizenship, intentional citizens, sorry, are citizens who kind of perform those various roles that they do in the state. They kind of serve in the military, obey the law, and so on and so forth, and whatever role the state allocates them. But they do so with an intention to take part in the state. So when they follow the state orders, they recognize that they are contributing to the general maintenance of the state as this corporate agent uh, that is able to then decide upon plans and to execute it. So this is a core idea, so let me just repeat it. So they they see themselves again as contributing to the very uh, idea that the, the very, uh, a, a corporate agency of the state as an agent that is ends up being independent to them, deciding on its own goals and executing them. Right, right. And as I said earlier, tells us that when people act together, they are become inclusive authors of the collective act. So if we kind of agree with him on that, the, f- the logical conclusion is that as long as citizens are indeed participating in a state with his intention, they are participating in and are the inclusive authors of a very ri- wide range of policies, even policies they disagreed with. So for example, um, citizens can say we invaded a certain country. Even if I myself uh, deeply disagree with a with a decision to invade, I can still recognize myself as one of the members who support the state's inability to invade a country, and therefore as a an inclusive author of what the state does.
0: And can 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 a citizen also say? You know, um, uh, we invaded Iraq. Um, just using one kind of example, um, we invaded Iraq, but I didn't realize that that's what was happening. That is kind of yes. state, can it, can a citizen be an inclusive an inclusive or an intentional citizen rather, um, in an act that she didn't fully understand the, um, uh, the contours of, <laughs>
1: I think I think that they can, and I think that is ah. one of the this idea rests at the very heart of the notion of political authority that we are all familiar with. Right. So right. the very idea of political authority is that we relinquish our control to the state. We assume that the state itself, as an agent that is responsible for making the laws of the land and deciding a variety of policies, has the authority to make these decisions. I don't, I'm aware as a citizen that I don't understand all the policies sure. that the Got state it. are making, that I'm not aware of all the policies that my state is making, and that I will not agree with all the policies that my state is making. But the very idea of state political authority assumes that nevertheless, despite this being the, if you like, the terms of the contract, I still continue to uh, lend my support by following Uh, uh, the orders and so on and so forth. So there is a caveat to that, that, but before I I go to the caveat, I just want to connect it back to the question of distribution. Because all I've done so far is to describe to you, you might say in empirical terms, what does it mean to act together in the state? I didn't say anything yet about what are the duties that flow from it and how is this all connected to the question of uh, distribution? So here is the idea. I argue in the book that um, because citizens are participating in the state's action in this way, they do incur a special responsibility with regard to the outcomes of these Mm actions. I believe that intentional participation in a state generates a special connection between you and the outcomes of your state's action. I think it is permissible to demand of all citizens that they contribute to remedying their state's wrongful policies, even if they're not to blame for these policies. So I think that the fact that we intentionally participate in a state explains why we can have a duty to share the burden of remedying the state's wrongdoing, regardless of our level of blame. I do think that if the state could opt for proportional distribution, it would be better. But given real-world constraints, the state had valid reasons to explain to us why proportional distribution is infeasible, too costly, and so on and so forth, then the fact that we intentional, our intentional participants can play the role of, if you like, replacing the blame argument, saying, well, we should all be sharing in this if the blame model is um, infeasible.
0: Excellent. So now, for the caveat.
1: Yes, but there is a very important <laughs> caveat because, yeah, right. um, and the caveat con- concerns the nature of 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 your intentions. Because, as I said, prisoners in a prison camp might also be intentionally participating in the in the whatever you know forced labor they are um, they are made to do. But I think it would be counterintuitive to suggest that they because they participated in them, they share they should be expected to share in the in the burdens of of remedying these things that they've done if they turned out to be wrongful. I, I just find that problematic. Right. So so the way that I, I solve this is that I, I suggest that these kind of moral duties that I describe, including the duty to participate in a non proportional distribution, requires a certain type of intentional participation, which I call genuine participation. And by this, I simply mean that it requires that citizens are not forced against their will to take part in their state, so that you are not forced against your will to obey the law, to serve in the military, and so on and so forth. And so why are you doing these things? Well, You might be motivated for a variety of reasons, which I'm not, you know, I don't give a full list there. Maybe it's because that you, you know, you love your state and you kind of like see your citizenship as constitutive of who you are. And maybe you have a more instrumental approach to your state. You kind of enjoy the various opportunities, instrumental opportunities it provides you. And you just, you know, just have a good life where you happen to find yourself. You know, there are various reasons why people kind of uh, participate in their state. But what matters is that you don't see it as forced against your will. If you do see the state uh, and the similar lines to the prisoner's view of the prison camp, if you think of it as an alien force in your life, you would have left it if you could, but you can't. In all these scenarios, you're not a genuine participant in your state. You're more like kind of the prisoner. And in I those see. cases, I don't think that membership in and of itself suffice to justify why you too should be sharing the burden. So
0: just to be yes. clear, that, that mm-hmm. makes it the case that one can be an intentional citizen um, if one's contribution to the collective endeavor um, uh, is not itself an object of one's own will. It just has to be not against one's will, right? It's so it's not like you have to will. (laughs) It's not like you have to positively will something. It just has to be the case that what you're doing or your contribution is not, um, uh, is not the, is, is not the product of somebody's
1: forcing you. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So there is an element of choice here. There is an element. I leave, I leave room for choice and I leave room for autonomy in the sense that, um, you, you have an exit option in the sense of resenting the state and kind of like you know being alienated from it. Those who are, who are feeling this way are indeed off the hook as far as I'm concerned. And in a way, I think it's the attractive feature of my, of my account that it is um, try to speak to, to people's subjective attitudes and internal attitudes with regard right. to state and take these very seriously. But I can also see why it might be seen as a drawback of the account, because you might think, well, if it's all in people's minds and internal states, oh, you know, how can you argue that this is a practicable model? How are we going to know um, what are people's attitudes? Um, and, and, and that, that might seem, seem to be a drawback of the model. Right. Um, but then, you know, maybe picking
0: up on that, it does make it a, um, something of an empirical matter. With respect to any given, um, population, whether that population by and large satisfies the requirements for, um, intentional citizenship, um, so, you know, you you get into this in one of your chapters where you say, well, look, we can look at this empirically, right? Mm-hmm. There are empirical markers, even, we might say. Um, maybe at some point we might even say, you know, uh, there's certain things that even might count as tests <laughs> for uh, uh, intentional citizenship. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about – I mean, you conclude that the, the, da- the empirical data that we have, especially with respect to um, uh, existing democratic states – um suggests that intentional citizenship is, is, is really
1: common. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So as I said, it seems like a drawback of the model that we have to go around find facts about the world. Is intentional citizenship common? And um and one of the objections that I um encountered when I presented this argument. Maybe, maybe because it was mostly presented to philosophers <laughs> who may have read too much philosophical anarchism, <laughs> uh, they, a lot of them said, well, you know, I, I'm in my state, I feel like I'm forced against my will. So, and I disagreed. As I said, my own political experience and my own kind of identity as, 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 as a citizen I felt that this account does describe what I sense and what, um, you know, fellow political activists have uh, felt so. But of course, this was very anecdotal data. So I was wondering, can I actually find um, more data on this question about people's attitudes with regard to the state? And lucky for me, for me I'm based in a, in a very good political science department. So I had colleagues who are very versed in empirical data to talk to about this and to describe to them the problem. And they actually suggested to me that there is a way of, of gauging, at least, um, in, in, in intentional citizenship uh, in the real world by looking at... Um, Cross-country attitude surveys. So um, these cross-country attitude surveys, surveys routinely ask people about their attitudes to their state or their country or their nation. There's there's various formulations of these questions, but they do kind of test these as part of the kind of national identity broad umbrella of question. And and these questions that, that that actually um, examine citizens' attitudes to the citizen to the citizenship status appear, like for example, in the Eurobarometer, in the Afrobarometer, in the World Value Survey. So you know, there's quite a lot of data one, one can use. And of course, the data is not specifically on intentional citizenship, the way that I kind of defined its its various uh, parameters. Um, but I I did so I do in the book kind of reflect and do kind of like an analysis of the questions that do exist in the in the um, in the surveys, and I identify those questions that, to my mind, are closest to what I need and, are, to my mind, are sufficient in order to kind of give us a general answer to the question of how prevalent uh, intentional citizenship. I mean, it would be very interesting to then go into the actual, you know, surveys that really uh, looks at very specific parameters of my question, but I haven't done that yet, uh, maybe right. maybe in future work. Um, so what I do is I, I kind of do data analysis of what we have from uh, real-world Um, surveys. And I reached the conclusion that the data is actually quite promising for my model. So looking at democracies, the democracies of the world, it does seem like intentional citizenship is quite widespread from questions such as how attached do you feel to your country and, and so on and so forth. The data is actually quite positive. The vast majorities of the people identify with the state, identify um, with the citizenship status, and don't seem to see it as forced on them against their will. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Even in in established democracies, there are exceptions. And some people don't identify with the state for, you know, are not intentional citizenship for idiosyncratic reasons. Um, But I do identify a couple of groups that are salient. Um, So one group is secessionist minorities. So among secessionist minorities, it is more likely that people will feel that they are forced against their will to live in the state that is kind of um, conflicts with their own nationalist aspirations. And that makes sense, I think. And the more interesting group, perhaps, the more challenging group for me is that of um, seriously oppressed and disadvantaged citizens. So there are uh, qualitative state studies in both in the US and the UK are the ones that I came across that show that people who are um, seriously oppressed, for example, racially oppressed, um, find it hard to kind of see themselves um, as, as members of, of, of the country as a whole. They often do feel um, very alienated from the institutions of the state. And I think it makes sense to me uh, and I do think that intuitively, it does make sense to me that it is far more problematic to demand of these groups, certainly of oppressed minorities, that they should also, like the rest of us, share in the burden, because there is something problematic there. So so that, that kind of confirms my own intuitions.
0: Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit, and so... Um, you know that those are, strike me as um, promising uh, um, results for your account, but I, I wasn't really surprised by them. To be honest with you, I mean, it seemed to me like, yeah, I would, I would expect, you know, in democratic states, um, intentional citizenship to be fairly common. Um, what can you tell us about non-democratic states? Uh, is 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 it less common in non-democratic states? I, I expect that it would be.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a a very good question, right? Because um, I think that um, it's a good question and it's an important question for me because as the examples I I hinted at the the start of our conversation suggest, it is often non-democracies that are burdened with this kind of compensatory obligations. Not always, but it is often non-democracies, right? So if we just limit ourselves to democracies, we're going to get a very partial answer with regard to the real world, and uh, the real world and its implication. And so I, I did want to also investigate what happens in non-democracies or authoritarian states. And when I went to the literature, what I found is that there's actually very little investigation in mainstream political philosophy of non-democratic states, right? We are seem to be almost exclusively interested <laughs> in democracies and it's part of the kind of the ideal ideal nature, idealistic nature of political theory until fairly recent but I think with kind of the, the non-ideal turn of recent years which one part of it that it questions the democratic, the real democratic nature of what we call real world democracies. But I think another interesting avenue that has not yet been sufficiently explored is what about the political obligations and duties of citizens of authoritarian regimes, which right. after all, a third of the world citizens live under authoritarian state, right? So there's, right. And, 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 of, and once I started looking into the literature from comparative politics, What you discover about authoritarian states is that there's one thing they all share in common, is that they're not democracies. (laughs) But beyond that, they share very little in common in the terms of the way that they legitimize their power, in the modes of repression they use, in in their engagement with their citizens and what they expect their citizens. So it's just a huge variety of authoritarian and non-democratic states, and clearly, the answer about what citizens um, owe the state and whether they're intentional participants in the state, you cannot have a one answer given the huge variety of of non-democracies. Now, you could go again to uh, attitude surveys, and there are attitude surveys that are conducted in in uh, non-democratic states. And when you look at the questions, such as how much you identify with the states, then you get really, you know, excellent numbers for my accounts. So you get 100% <laughs> support. Um, uh, right. But um, I, I, I'm not an I'm not a data collector. I'm not an empirical political scientist, and I don't I just don't know how reliable that data is. I, I. I have concerns that it's not very reliable. So I thought it's we shouldn't take it at face value. Right. And instead, what I propose is that we should examine the nature of the relationship between the state and its citizens in non-democracies. And, and I suggest three parameters that, to my mind, three factors that, to my mind, are um, important, are connected to intentional citizenship. So one of them is the extent of civic participation, right? So we know what we need to do in a state as democratic citizens, but what non-democratic citizens are expected to do in a state varies from participation in a lot of state activity, from military parade, military events, so to, to the state almost being non-present in people's lives, right? So we right. have a wide range of participation there. And we also, uh, the second factor is patterns of state repression. So to what extent, state to what extent, um, um, Citizens face um, 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 and you know punishment and curtailment of their rights should they choose to express uh, their views against the state. And finally, there's a question of state manipulation, which is uh, you know related to repression, but I separate them. So state manipulation. I mean, to what extent citizens actually know what right. the state is, not, is doing, and to what extent they don't know that they don't know. Right. Right. So we have states that manipulate the citizens so much to the extent that the citizens actually don't understand that they are being manipulated, and that perhaps is to an extent different than uh, democratic citizens. Um, so I, I tie I, I look I, and I suggest that the level of state manipulation, state um, but, uh, but the civic participation and repression can help us to gauge international citizenship. And the bottom line is that I suggest that. In the majority, in the I think in the vast majority of of states that as we know them, authoritarian states as we know them, it is unlikely that we will have prevalent intentional citizenship. But there are actually, I think, it is possible that there are there are actually authoritarian states with lower level. At least they were in the history of you know the last two hundred years, states with uh, where where you could see um, that. We have more reasons to think that intentional citizenship was prevalent, but by and right. large, the conclusion I'm drawn to is, like you suggested, but I now have a basis for it—not just an intuition—that <laughs> right. in non-democracies, we should be much, much more careful about assuming right. that the citizenship, the citizens, are participating.
0: Right. Great. And you know, you at one point in the book. Um, make reference to a distinction between um, authoritarian and totalitarian states um, where it seemed to me very interesting because it, it struck me that part of the injustice of totalitarian states is that it's part of the you know, the state part of what the state does is try to you know try to expand complicity among the citizens in its wrongdoings, right? Exactly. Part of what it does is it forces, milit- you know, it, it, and it's usually um, uh, uh, coordinated with various kinds of nationalist, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, stoking certain kinds of nationalist sentiments. So, you know, it got me thinking, it's a nice thing for a philosophy or a political theory book to do is to get one thinking, got me thinking like, yeah, part of the injustice of... Oh of that kind of non-democratic state is the way in which it tries to manufacture the conditions under which more and more people will count as intentional citizens uh, and therefore will be liable uh, for, yeah. uh, for its wrongdoing right
1: Yeah and And for me I have to say as an, as an Israeli citizen again going back to autobiography um, it got me thinking about, for example the German reparation scheme. Because, right. as growing up in Israel, it was obvious to me that the German reparation scheme was an absolute moral duty without any question yeah. of of Germany. But, having worked on these questions, I began to to ask myself, why do I think that the German citizens as, as a whole are responsible to play for the atrocities committed by the government? While I'm much more willing to admit that the Iraq, it seems to me in the case of the Iraqi citizens, I was feeling uncomfortable about that yeah. fact that I and I and I had I've obviously I had this personal bias as an Israeli citizen, but I think it. Of course, we need to look closely into what happened in Iraq, and we need to look closely at what happened in Germany, and there's. A Lots of debates among historians about the attitude of the German population to the Nazi state and to and to the atrocities that it committed, how much they knew or not, and you know we need to rely on these empirical accounts, but I think the kind of like knee jerk reaction of it was it was right uh, i i I'm not so sure and you know we, we need to right. investigate what happened there before we reach that conclusion
0: right right excellent so um you know we've got uh, you've been very generous with your time and so we, we've we've got a little bit under 10 minutes uh, left so I wanted to sort of fold two questions maybe into one that are both about the end of the book because uh, as as you start the book you say you know you're really interested in talking about policy and talking to policymakers. Um, so the book aims to be a kind of guide to real world um, uh, decision making about, um, you know, apportioning responsibility for states' wrongdoings, uh, you know, to citizens of those states. So I want to ask you just collapsing two questions into one. Uh, the book ends with two discussions. One is a discussion about state compensation schemes of the kind you were just referencing and cases of punishing states. Um, and then uh, another chapter, the, the final chapter of the book, talks about uh, historical wrongs and. Um, cases where the states uh, uh, the state committed acts of wrong uh, of wrongdoing uh, for which contemporary citizens are being held responsible, even when the contemporary, the contemporary citizens of the state might not have existed. And the actual regime might have changed in various ways from the time uh, in which the wrongdoings were, con- were, uh, were committed. So that's, a, that, that, I'm inviting you, I guess, more than asking a question to talk about the, the issues the, the sort of rubber hits the road issues uh, that you address in the latter two chapters of the book.
1: Yeah, so that's where I, I kind of again as somebody was both a philosopher but also based in the political science department, I did kind of have an aspiration for the book to have, you know, to kind of not just stay at the theoretical level but to kind of try to push towards pragmatic conclusions. And I guess one of the important um, bottom lines of of the uh, of of the book is that the current practice that we have, um, which I mentioned earlier, as kind of in international law and also in domestic law to an extent that um let the burden of um compensation fall just you say we you the state is responsible for it go ahead and distribute it however you want we're not concerned with what happens after we identify the state itself that is not a model that in my in my view is it, it can be justifiable so i i agree with it to an extent i do such i do agree that in democratic states by and large, this approach can be justified in light of mm-hmm. everything that we discuss, but not in non-democracies. So here I think that in non-democracies, we should be much, much more careful. Right. Um, and so so the conclusion is kind of that we should rethink the way where we do things at the international level. And if we kind of adopt that approach that we currently have, um, in some states, when we hold the state responsible and we ignore kind of the further distribution, we let the burden fall on individuals who, much like the victims that we are trying to compensate, right. actually are not liable to these costs. That's so, right. it is in these, so what I suggested that international practice should look at the internal structure of the state. And when there are reasons to be concerned, we need to look for alternative sources for compensation. Maybe it's piercing the veil of the state when that's. Um, when that 's feasible, and maybe it is going to the international community and kind of having a fund for example, that compensates victims rather than going f- through the resources for example of the rich states of the world rather than going and kind of letting the burden fall on on the citizens of the wrongdoing state right. um, and this is of course is is an argument that is so there's other voices in literature in a similar line like the audience debt doctrine worries about passing um debts from um, uh, about holding um, uh, um, a dictatorial authoritarian regime to their debts because of the implications for the citizens, and there are other voices in the literature, but you know, I kind of add to that line a different angle that, that focuses on on state um, responsibility. And I do try to utilize this abstract framework to kind of pragmatic answer. So, For example, in one of the chapters of the book, I look very closely at the United Nations compensation scheme that was in, uh, enforced uh, on Iraq. And I kind of analyze, I, I do what I suggest should be done. So I analyze the regime structure in Iraq at the time. I show that according to my model, it's very unlikely that the vast majority of Iraqi citizens were intentional participants of the state, so I don't think the scheme as it was constructed was justified. And then I offer a range of solutions or of alternatives that the designers of the scheme might have used um, instead to generate right. the, the, the compensation uh, for the victims. So so it kind of says, well, this is how it could be done in reality. Right. Um, the last bit of the book indeed looks at historical responsibility, and there The core question I asked there is, okay, it's all fine for things that we've done, um, we're doing today, but, you know, this 2008 Canadian compensation scheme, lots of Canadian citizens were not even alive at the time that the wrongs and questions were committed. Mm. So how can they be participating in these wrongs, inclusive authors of those wrongs, if um, they're not even born? So how can my account explain that? And... I have an account there that that explains that. I, I, I talk about how I do think that the state um they're not might they might not have been participants of the original wrong, but they are participating in the perpetuation of that, of the wrong and the harm that was inflicted on the victim by not addressing it. So right. they are participating in that and therefore that in itself can generate an obligation. There's lots of other complex, really interesting complex issues I came across (laughs) as I worked on this chapter, like what do we do if the regime has changed? And what do we do if indeed the state has changed? There's really fascinating stuff, but I think that given the interest of time, I'm gonna just um, leave the (laughs) listeners hanging on that and just um, invite (laughs) them to look at the final chapter of the book if they want answers.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so, you know, b- 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 fabulous. Um, l- again, what what will you do next? I mean, this is a cruel question to ask somebody who's just published a, a very, very, know, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, very good book. Um, uh, what's your next project? Are you picking up on some uh,
1: some of the issues? Uh, uh, actually, from you? I've changed course a little bit. I'm still interested in res- responsibility for wrongdoing. But what I, I'm actually now writing in another book that is um, the title is "No Justice, No Peace" in ah. defense of violent protests, and <laughs> I'm looking at and it's connected to this project in the sense that I'm I'm asking whether citizens can resort to a violent resistance to the state injustices, um, specifically um, uh, the violence in in protest. That we have seen to an extent, to at some level of violent protests in the U.S. in recent years, we are seeing them elsewhere in the world, right? So it's it's a common phenomenon. Sometimes people refer to this as riots, but it's a problematic term, so I'm just calling it violent protest. So I'm asking, can citizens say that you know this is the, all else has been tried and and tested and, and failed, and we can now resort to violence even in democratic states? So um, yeah, I'm I, again I very excited about this project and and working on it now. Uh
0: well that sounds um uh that sounds really intriguing and it's a um political and moral question that I myself have often found myself wondering about at what point is um yeah, at what point is violence uh political violence um, uh, justified? Um, and so I I I look forward to uh, to seeing that work. That that that's that. I'll keep an eye out for it. Thank um, you. So for now, though, uh, Avia, I want just I want to thank you uh, for joining me uh, on New Books in Philosophy. It's been really wonderful uh, talking to you about the book, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Avia Pasternak's book, which is titled "Responsible Citizens, Irresponsible States." It's newly published with Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.